Good morning. Good morning. I'm John, one of the pastors of High Rock Church, and it's so great to be worshiping with you all today. And a very special to you, welcome to you if you are new with us. Uh, we're so glad that you could join us, as uh, you've heard many times this morning. Um, and I, I do want to invite you to something after service during Soul Food, which is our shared meal together downstairs. Uh, there's going to be an orange table there, and so if you are new with us, I invite you to that table where you can connect with a couple of folks from uh, both of our churches. So as we continue this week in our Where Is It Written sermon series, taking a look at who we are as a church, you know, we've been taking a look at some of the distinctive characteristics of each of our churches, and today, as we take a look at the book of Ruth, we'll be talking about welcoming. And this is something that, you know, we value at High Rock and has characterized a part of who we are as a church. And for those of you who have been a part of High Rock for a long time, you know that the Book of Ruth is a cherished book in our community. Uh, it was the first sermon series. It was the basis of a large part of our welcoming and integration. And we had something called these Ruth's, Ruth groups, which was a Bible study group. And, you know, much of High Rock Brookline's values and culture and uh, derived from the book of Ruth, things like welcoming and family and commitment that has uh, shaped a lot of who we are. And so welcoming, and, and so we're talking about welcoming, but uh, welcoming, not just from a church perspective, you know, is, is such a vital part of uh, humanity at large, because it touches on a fairly uh, universal desire that I think we all share, and that's a desire to belong a desire to be accepted. And so when we feel welcomed in a space, right, when we begin to feel accepted, we begin to feel like it's a place where we can belong. Now, if you're a transplant to the Boston area, meaning you didn't grow up in the area but came for education, for training, or work experience or opportunities, or some other reason, and typically the plan is to return to where you came from or go somewhere else. And if that's you, then... You're not alone. You're probably in the same boat as many of us in this room today, but not just in this congregation, but in this area in general. I myself, I originally came up here uh, to the Boston area for seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and, you know, I, I originally didn't have plans to stay in the area, um, and like many of you here today, it was important for me to find a community, right, a place to belong and to be accepted while living here. And so one of the first things that happens uh, in the beginning of the school year at seminary is this church fair, where a bunch of different churches in the greater Boston area will send representatives to introduce themselves and connect with seminary students. Uh, because, you know, the students will no doubt be looking for a church not only to attend but to serve at. And so on that day, I, I made my way around all the tables, uh, just, you know, schmoozing with whoever was at the table. You know, Hi, where are, you, where are you from? Nice to meet you. And they'll say, come check us out, take some flyers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, by the end of it, I, had, I amassed probably like 10 different church bulletins and some pens, a water bottle, and even a flashlight. And at that time, there were only two High Rock churches, Arlington and Brookline. And they were both there. They both had tables set up. And I remember the Brookline table, it had this big uh, computer monitor, and then they had some flyers laid out. And this was the first time that I met uh, Pastor Yumiko and Pastor Josh, who uh, isn't with us anymore, but <laughs> who was our founding pastor of Brookline. Uh, Lanny was also there, but we knew each other from Maryland, so, um, I mean, it wasn't the first time we met. And, you know, it was, it was a fine welcome, right? They're nice people. Uh, 
we, we greeted each other, said hi, and uh, asked the, the, the normal questions, where are you from, and things like that. The same thing that I experienced at the other tables. Um, but I remember what stood out to me uh, after that initial meet and greet was that they gave an invitation to a restaurant afterwards to share a meal and a drink together and chat some more. And so I took off on that invitation. I, I went. I got to know them a little more. We chatted a little more. They got to know me. I got to tell my story of how I got there. And, you know, these seem like people that I would want to spend time with. I appreciated that gesture. And it was sort of this initial kind of welcoming and uh, just feeling of acceptance and belonging that I felt. And in my time here uh, at High Rock and in the Boston area, you know, at many a member meeting uh, within our church, you know, New members will introduce themselves, and a lot of the times, one of the common answers is that they felt welcomed and, and accepted, the common answer to the question of why they chose uh, to stay. And, you know, even the way we think about and, and plan Sunday services and the order and just everything, and a lot of thought goes into it in, in being intentional and creating a space that is, is welcoming and does not, you know, kind of thwart you and, and make you feel like you don't belong. And so as we look at this passage today in Ruth, there's three questions that I uh, want to answer for us. First, what does uh, this passage actually tell us about welcoming? Second, why should we welcome? And third, how should we welcome? So getting a little more practical. So first, what does this passage actually tell us about welcoming? And before we, we go into the passage, I want to give a bit of a context uh, to set the stage for those who might not be as familiar, the book of Ruth, it begins in chapter 1 uh, explaining that there was this Israelite couple, Elimelech and Naomi, and they had two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they moved out of Israel because there was a famine. And so they went to this country called Moab, uh, a foreign country that was new to them. And uh, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, they decide to marry Moabite women, who are Orpah and Ruth. And so, according to, um, you know, what we read, continuing in chapter 1, we see that tragedy befalls this family. And we see that Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, they all die, leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth alone. And in this historical context, uh, you know, to be a woman without a husband or sons in a society where women are, you know, akin to property and being a mother or, or a wife is really the only identity that's worth noting in that time, they're left with nothing. They're outcasts. They're in this extremely vulnerable position. And so Naomi, she then hears that the famine has lifted in Israel, and she decides to return. But she wants Orpah and Ruth to stay in Moab. Right? She, she tells them to remain there because it's, it's their hometown. That's where they grew up. That's where they're familiar. They're accepted. She knows that for them to come back with her to Israel, not only as widows without children, but as foreigners, that would be extremely difficult. And so Orpah does choose to stay in Moab, but we see that Ruth commits to remain with Naomi and come back to Israel with her. And she uh, makes the commitment to go where she'll go, to die where she dies, to make her people her people and Naomi's God her God. And so they set off back to Israel to the town of Bethlehem. And so that brings us to the beginning of our passage in chapter 2. We see that one day Ruth wants to go out 
and pick up some leftover grains from harvesters and provide for her and Naomi. Now, she can't just go into any field and just you know, start randomly picking up grain or, or even start working for that, uh, the owner of that field, like the normal harvesters and reapers who, who work these fields. What she's saying is that she's going to go and just pick up the scraps, the leftovers. And this is what's referred to in some translations as gleaning. And according to Mosaic law, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow, they were to be taken care of by intentionally leaving behind some grains for them to pick up. And so Ruth knows this, and so that's why she says she wants to go out and do it. And so as a Moabite woman and a widow, Ruth, she qualifies to glean on on two counts. But for those very same reasons, as a widow and a foreigner, there's this inherent danger and fear of being mistreated, which is why uh, she she says that anyone who is kind enough to let her actually do it. And so Ruth, she heads out, and as it happens, she finds herself working in the field of Boaz, who the scripture tells us is a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, ex-husband. And just, you know, a word on this translation here, when it says, as it happened, the English translation, it denotes coincidence or chance or accident or luck, but the Hebrew text, it more strongly suggests that God's hand was directing her. So there is more of this providential piece to it. And it's even more pronounced because of the fact that, you know, while she was there, like, you know, she happened to be in Boaz's field, and on that day when she's there, Boaz actually appears. And so there is this, you know, stronger piece of providential, uh, divine providence that you see there. You know, I want to be careful not to, you know, over-spiritualize, but even thinking about all of us here this morning, you know, do we believe that perhaps God led us to this particular place for a particular reason? And just a thought. And so while Ruth, she was led to this field to gather grain, this is important to note because in this field, it's where she is welcomed, right? If she was in someone else's field, who knows how she would have been received, And we see throughout this passage that Ruth is welcomed with hospitality, with generosity, with protection, help, and refuge. And we see this primarily in the dialogue between Boaz and Ruth. But even before that, if we look at the exchange that Boaz has when he first comes, his exchange with the foreman, we see there is already this sort of culture of welcoming and this welcoming environment that's already there. And so in verse 5 to 7, Boaz inquires about Ruth, and the foreman replies, saying, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. And she asked me this morning if she could gather grain or glean behind the harvesters. And she has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. And so initially, it wasn't even Boaz who Ruth asked and who gave Ruth permission to do this, to gather the grain. It was this foreman. And not only that, even if the foreman gave her the permission to do it, it's the workers in the field who would have to know to even leave behind those corners of the grain and leave scraps for Ruth to even glean. And so there is this kind of understanding in this entire field amongst all the workers that they're supposed to welcome foreigners. They're supposed to welcome widows and orphans and abide by the Mosaic law. And so this was a welcoming environment that accepted Ruth despite who she was. And, you know, speaking of unwelcoming environments, at least for me, one of the most unwelcoming was high school lunch. <laughs> you know, 
every year, those first few days of lunch were, were really just anxiety-ridden experiences for me. I think it was in the 11th grade that uh, it was a year where none of my close friends shared the same lunch period as me. We had three lunch periods, and so uh, after, we, after we talked, we found out that none of us shared that period. And so, you know, going into that year, the first few days when, when you get to the cafeteria and you're in there and you see all the cliques and different groups of, of friends that are already established and kind of forming their, taking their spots in the cafeteria. I would slowly walk along the outskirts with my lunch and just kind of desperately scan the room for anyone that I recognized, anyone, even an acquaintance that I could just, you know, kind of slip in and, and just be there with, or, or someone to kind of flag me down and say, hey, come over here and invite me over. And if that failed, then I would try to find just an empty spot really fast where, you know, just eat really fast, just sit down, get my food in, and then get out, you know, and go hang out at the library or, or outside or something, or even in the bathroom sometimes. <laughs> but anywhere other than that space because I felt so unwelcomed. And, you know, I think as a result of, that, of those experiences, I feel like whenever I'm in a, a, a large just public meal space, it's there's a little bit of anxiety that's still there. And it's, it's funny because High Rock, we used, to, we used to meet in schools. Before the, before the temple, we used to meet at Brookline High. And before that, it was at the Devotion School, which is now the Coolest Corner School. And, and Soul Food, where we share a meal together, it took place in those cafeterias. <laughs> but my, my experience is redeemed, so don't worry. <laughs> and if you are new with us today... And you share my anxiety in some, in some way, some form or fashion. Know that you are not alone. Um, and I would be more than happy to eat with you. We can, you can find me after service and we can even go downstairs together. Uh, but as we continue in our passage, the, we now come to the initial conversation that Boaz and Ruth have together. And the first thing to note is that Boaz is... Uh, it tells us that he's a man of standing. He's, he's a landowner. He's well off. He's well respected. He has all these people working under him. He's got this reputation in the town. And so for him to even be talking to this foreigner, let alone a woman, it indicates, it, it kind of reveals to us what kind of person he is and just this welcoming heart that he has. In verse 8, the way he addresses her, he, he says, listen, my daughter. And this isn't so this isn't a patronizing statement. It was, it was one, just an, a simple acknowledgement of what probably was a pretty large age gap between the two of them. But more so, it arises out of just a genuine sense of responsibility that Boaz feels for Ruth, despite the fact that she's a Moabite. And like a loving father, he wants to provide protection and his own resources to this foreigner. And so we see that he continues telling her to stay here in this field. And specifically, he says to stay right behind the women, the young women workers in the field. And this is significant because, in a way, Ruth is, is being given sort of this informal status as one of his actual workers. Because behind the young women uh, were the gleaners, but he's, staying to stay, he's telling her to stay closer to them. So she, he's, she's kind of moved up in that uh, kind of hierarchical food chain. She was completely outside of Israel at first, but she's being brought in. And on top of that, he assures her that he's warned the men not to treat her roughly. Because it was probably a common occurrence in a lot of these fields that these gleaners, who typically were marginalized groups, 
they, they wouldn't be afforded the same level of uh, respect or decency as the regular workers. And, it's, and this isn't a perfect parallel, but if we were to think about in our context of what a, a gleaner might be, we might think of those, you know, we see that collect cans and cart around these huge trash cans of uh, bottles and cans, and they sift through trash and recycling bins. And, you know, you see people tend to avoid contact with them or even give looks of disdain or even, you know, shoo them away sometimes. And in Ruth's context, I mean, there, there was added verbal and, and physical mistreatment of these gleaners, and so uh, they would oftentimes have to endure this as they worked. And so it was a big deal that, that Boaz would do this for her. And then to top that off, he offers free access to the water that's designated for the workers. So it's kind of like he's inviting her now to the company water cooler. So again, she's kind of given this informal status as one of, her, one of his workers. And we see that Ruth responds to the generous welcome of Boaz and his workers by you know, bowing down and expressing both, both a sense of disbelief to his kindness to her as a foreigner, but also this deep sense of gratitude. And you know, this is sort of this story of uh, you know, this native majority who, who lives in the land and who has this privilege and he's welcoming this foreign minority. And you know, when we hear similar stories of that today, where we hear a story of maybe a former KKK member and, and a person of color getting along, or you know, a super conservative evangelical Christian and a person of the LGBTQ community that gets along. And this piques our interest because in the eyes of the world, that shouldn't be, right? We're supposed to be at a distance and we're not supposed to welcome the unknown into our midst. In fact, we should fear the unknown. That's kind of what we're told by society. We're divided in so many ways and even pitted against each other all the time. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that men often hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they cannot communicate. And they cannot communicate because they are separated. And of course, he was talking about segregation during his time. And so when we think about welcoming, you know, that initial just moment and, and first piece of welcoming that happens, it is in order to bring together, to not separate, to create that space and opens the opportunity for communication, which leads to getting to know each other, which leads to the opportunity to trust and love one another no matter what, who we are. And so that touches upon our second question of why we welcome. Welcoming is an act of love. It's an act of loving one another, carrying out God's command to do so. But 1 John 4, 19, it tells us that we love each other because he first loved us. And so in the same way that we welcome others, because God first welcomed us. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, you know, God makes it known to the Israelites that you will be my people and I will be your God. He's welcoming them. These, these Israelites, they were foreigners in Egypt at the time. They were oppressed. They were enslaved. And so God not only delivered them out of Egypt, he welcomed them into his family. And it's why there are laws to care for the foreigner and the widow, the orphan and the poor. For Boaz, there's a few main reasons why he welcomes that we can see in this passage. In verse 11, Boaz responds to Ruth's gratefulness, saying that he knows the kindness that she showed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, right, when she left her home country and uh, decided to follow Naomi and make 
her people, her uh, Ruth's people, and make Naomi's God Ruth's God, and all this foreign, uh, you know, foreign religion, foreign people, all of this, she made it her own, and she made that commitment. And Boaz is inspired by that. She's, he's, he wants to show her the same kind of kindness. And in verse 12, we see that uh, Boaz acknowledges Ruth's, um, you know, seeking shelter from God, this God that she doesn't know. And so Boaz, he's, he's, he's an extension of God's love for her in this moment because she sought refuge in him, and, uh, he's, and she's receiving care through Boaz. But perhaps another reason for Boaz's welcoming heart, and the one that I want to focus on is his own experience, his upbringing. If we turn to Matthew 1.5, we find that Boaz's parents were Salmon and Rahab. And if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, Rahab is uh, a woman in Jericho who hid the Israelite spies and protected them and was spared and accepted by the Israelites after the walls, you know, were taken down and Jericho was conquered. And it was Salmon that welcomed her, Rahab, this foreigner, and he married her. And so Boaz, you know, growing up in that, right, perhaps he learned from this welcoming heart of his father. And so as a result, we even see that Rahab and Ruth, both foreign women, become a part of the bloodline of Jesus when we take this larger look at the narrative of Scripture. And that's, you know, that's an amazing part of God's redemptive plan that we get a glimpse of here. And this gracious welcome that God extended through Boaz to Ruth, now through Jesus, is extended to all people. Right? Colossians 1.21 to 22 tells us, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And so we welcome because Jesus welcomed us first. We welcome because it tells the good news of Jesus. Jesus, in his time here on earth, welcomed all, right? But in particular, he welcomed the marginalized, the outcasts, the outsiders, those that society had deemed less than, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunks, the foreigners. We welcome because Jesus welcomed us. And we as a church, we welcome not so that our church organization or institution is built up or our numbers increase and we look good on the outside, not so we feel better about ourselves or to build a social network of friends or uh, reap benefits from each other. We welcome as a church because we are the body of Christ. Right? The extension of him in this world that is to tell of the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven where Jesus reigns justly, mercifully, and in abundance of love, a kingdom that welcomes with open arms all who accept the invitation of grace. And this is why we welcome. But how exactly do we do that? Right? And that's our third and final question. How do we welcome, practically speaking, in our context today? So we've seen the initial welcome of Boaz and his workers of accepting Ruth, the foreigner, in their midst. And, you know, they offer resources and protection to her. 
But is that the extent to which we're to welcome? To show a bit of hospitality and you know, offer some scraps? Of course, the answer is no. And there's a particular word that captures sort of the posture of how we are to welcome in this book. And that word is, uh, in the Hebrew, is hesed. And it's translated as kindness or faithful love or loving kindness in the English, but uh, no English translation can really fully capture its Hebrew meaning. Uh, Author Carolyn Custis James, she offers this definition, which I think is helpful. She says this. Hesed is driven not by duty or legal obligation, but by a bone-deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has a right to expect or ask of them. They have the freedom to act or to walk away without the slightest injury to their reputation. Yet, they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. It's actually the kind of love we find most fully expressed in Jesus. In a nutshell, said, is the gospel lived out. In the book of Ruth, we see the word in three places, in the beginning, middle, and end, which is kind of cool from a literary advantage perspective. And, you know, riddled throughout the entire book, you see glimpses of Hesed. First in Ruth 1.8, in Naomi's blessing on Ruth and Orpah, that God would show them Hesed. Next in Ruth 2.20, Naomi's response to hearing about Ruth's encounter in in Boaz's field. And finally in Ruth 3.10, in Boaz's response to Ruth in showing him Hesed. But all throughout the book, as I mentioned, we see glimpses of this Hesed love. And it's how welcoming is done. If we continue to read uh, in Ruth chapter 2 and look at 14 to 16, we see that Boaz goes well above what law required or even what Ruth was expecting. You know, she already expressed her deep gratitude and disbelief of how kind he was being. And now he even welcomes Ruth to the table to share a meal. She's sitting at the table with Boaz and the other workers. And, you know, for us, when we, at first glance, when we think of that, it's, it doesn't seem like a big deal to, you know, be invited to share a meal with someone. But in that context where, uh, for the Israelites, they had all these customs and laws and rituals all dealing with food and mealtimes, there is a deep spiritual and theological significance to sharing a meal. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, it was after a covenant was made between nations that they would have this, uh, this fellowship meal where they celebrate the peace that was just formed. Even after a covenant was made between God and Israel, a meal was shared in his presence. And so meals, you know, sharing a meal together, it's, in, it's this intimate place of fellowship and peace amongst all who are present. And so to have this outsider, this foreigner who comes from a nation of foreign gods, she shouldn't have been allowed at the table. And it's just like how the Pharisees scoffed at Jesus, who not only associated, but ate with sinners. But it doesn't stop there. Boaz again takes another step and tells his workers to purposely leave extra grain out for Ruth to gather. Not even saying if you forget something or drop some of the scraps, but to leave some of the actual good crop that they've gathered for her. And so, as we think about welcoming for ourselves and how we actually do that in our context, is this the heart of what we we think about? This has said characteristic that places others well above ourselves. 
you know, for those of us who are members and regular attenders of either of our churches, how are we welcoming one another? And not just welcoming the people we know, our friends and those who are close to us, but those we don't know well, those we don't know at all, right? How are we going above and beyond to make them feel welcomed, accepted, and like they belong in this place? And for just a moment, I just want to address those of you who are new with us or who, you know, maybe have been around but don't feel like you quite belong yet. And I just want to, first of all, commend you for your courage in being here and making that step to worship with us in this foreign space. I hope that it's a space that feels welcome to you. And, you know, I, and, I, and I hope that you are able to make connections, whether it's through organized events in our church or just spontaneously in the hallway or after the service or at Soul Food. And, you know, again, I'd love to connect with you if you're open to it. And I'll be right over to the right after the service um, offering prayer. But if you just want to chat, I'll also be down at Soul Food. But for all of us, you know, we, we all have different abilities and giftings and personalities and different ways that we welcome others, right? For some of us, sure, maybe we have the means or the courage to, to be able to invite a, a, a random stranger off the street into our home, prepare an extravagant meal, and provide continuing resources to them afterwards and ask nothing in return. And for others of us, maybe saying hello to a stranger is a significant act of welcoming. And so I don't want to suggest just one universal application because I don't think there is one. But I do feel like we individually have to sort of self-assess where we're being convicted, where we're lacking, where our, our strengths lie, and where we should stretch ourselves. You know, we need to be aware of how we're connecting to others and recognize that others may not connect in the same way. Right? And that's okay. And that can be awkward at times, for sure. But we can be awkward together. Okay, that's, I mean, that's the beauty of Christian community, right? When we're authentic and we're just showing our true selves and, you know, we may not connect in, in certain ways, but we're doing it for the unity and, and the oneness and the love of Christ. And now, I'm not saying that, you know, we're moving toward, we're, I'm not saying that we all need to be the best, most intimate, close friends. I don't think that's what scripture tells us. And I don't think that's even possible, because there's always going to be different points of connection for people. There's always different sort of social and, and you know, personal spaces that we uh, sort of live in and, and just are. And that's okay. I think that's, we need to recognize that and be able to accept each other despite that. And scripture tells us that we're one body with many parts. And that God placed each of us where he wants us. And so there is this aspect of, you know, even though there is this kind of universal, yes, welcome but the way we do that is going to differ because there are different people. We're all different people, and we all connect in different ways. And so as we close today, what I want to do is I want to invite us into um, just an extended time of reflection and just a reflection on our own experiences as guests, as strangers, to help us you know, begin to figure out how and even maybe who God might be wanting us to welcome today and moving forward. And so if you, you can feel free to close your eyes, bow your head, whatever helps you to focus, but let's spend some time in reflection and I'll uh, lead us through a couple of prompts.
First, let's think about the things that make us feel comfortable, valued, safe, welcome. Whether it's an experience, a past moment that you lived through, something that someone did, something that someone said, whatever it is, what makes you feel comfortable, valued, safe, and welcome. Next, let's take a moment to reflect on sort of the opposite of that, where there was an experience or a moment that made you feel uncomfortable, unwelcome, and it communicated to you that you were inconvenient or in the way. Next, let's take a moment to reflect on what it is about certain people or certain places that make us feel renewed and nourished. And finally, let's take a moment to consider the ways in which we can either welcome the way that we were welcomed and felt safe and valued and renewed and nourished, or think of ways in which we can prevent the negative experience, that unwelcome, that devaluing, that inconvenience that I experienced, and how we can do that for others. Now hear these words from Revelation chapter 21. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you that this is the future that you've welcomed us into. We thank you that while we were sinners, you died for us and welcomed us into your presence. Thank you for making it possible through your death and resurrection. And as we seek to welcome those as you have into this beautiful reality, help us by your spirit to be empowered and to be able to use the gifts that you've given us in the specific ways that you've placed each of us in this community and beyond. And Lord, we do all of this for the sake of your name that you would be glorified, God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.